Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church of Murfreesboro. It is an honor and privilege to share this time with you. We love studying the scriptures and feel they are central to our preaching, teaching, and living of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Our mission here is to grow disciples of Jesus Christ who know him, love him, and serve him for the transformation of Murfreesboro and the world. It is our prayer that God would use our preaching and teaching to do exactly that. If you have questions, thoughts, ideas, or just want to talk a little bit more about what you've heard today, we love to hear from you. Most of all, know that you are in our prayers as we listen together. Now, let's dive in. This morning, uh, we'll be reading from the 51st Psalm, as Michael said, and so you might want to go ahead and find that. We'll have it on the screen. I'm going to read through the whole thing now, and then we'll hear it again as we go through our sermon together. Let's pray before we hear Psalm 51. Oh God, we give you thanks for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for a beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. Our hearts are warmed by your sunshine. It is a gift to gather together, to worship you, to be in your presence. We pray now for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open our hearts to what you have to say to us today. Lord, we confess that we are made nervous at the thought of transformation, and yet we trust that what is most needed is transformation by your grace in and through your Son, Jesus So, Lord, help us to hear what you have to say to us today. We ask in the name of Jesus, and together we say, Amen. Let us hear the word of God from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in, in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God for the people of God. And so we say, thanks be to God. Today, uh, we consider the seventh and eighth of the 12 steps of recovery. We've been studying these 12 steps to see what we can learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ through the wisdom of our sisters and brothers who are in the recovery community, recovering from all different kinds of addiction. So far, we have learned what it might look like to admit our powerlessness over our sin and brokenness. We've confessed our desperation for God to act. We've worked on surrendering our lives to this God who saves us. We've tried to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We've tried also to confess the exact nature of our wrongs, and we've become entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. I want to say those steps, I think that's up to step number six, they take a long time. We talk about them like they just happen one right after the other. We go all back and forth, all around, all over the place. It takes years to work these 12 steps, and so I don't want you to feel like this is a fast-forward possibility. You can't work the 12 steps in a hurry. It takes time. How much time? as long as it takes. And then often we have to go back and repeat, do again one or two or three or more of those steps. Today, we consider what it is, this is the seventh step, to humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings, to humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. We might call it our sin both our general condition of sin, something with which we all struggle, and the specific sins which plague you and me. We all have our own specific sins. We're ready to humbly ask God to remove those things. Our Old Testament lesson for today that you just heard is the 51st Psalm. You may not know, uh, this is a prayer uh, written when the prophet Nathan confronted his good friend King David after King David's affair with Bathsheba. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that story so you have some background here. This is the great King David. Michael, you were right. He, he killed G uh, Goliath, the giant. He was loved by God and everybody. He was a wonderful leader of the people of God. He was just absolutely beloved. We remember also the story of Bathsheba, who was a beautiful woman, a wife of one of David's generals, David was at home resting on the roof of his palace one day. His palace was bigger than everybody else's. And he looked over and he saw on the roof of another house Bathsheba taking a bath. Okay, that's, what, that's why her name is Bathsheba. Not really, but that sounds good to me. Uh, this is all in 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you want to go read the whole thing. David saw this beautiful woman bathing on the roof of her home. He wanted to know who she was. He found out who she was. That's General Uriah's wife. Now, General Uriah and all of the military men were out fighting King David's wars, okay? They were fighting King David's wars while King David was at home relaxing on his roof. Don't miss that. That's what was going on. This woman was home alone. The king sent for her. Of course, she dutifully arrived on his doorstep. The scriptures simply say 
he lay with her. He lay with her. Probably wasn't quite that easy. She loved her husband. She would never have willingly cheated on her husband. But David's power was absolute. The king got what the king wanted, and the king did want Bathsheba. He lay with her, but I'll bet she didn't want to lay with him. In any case, she was soon carrying David's child. King David was in a panic. He sends for General Uriah. He wants Uriah to come home for a little R&R with his wife. You know what he's trying to do. He's trying to cover his tracks here. So he gets Uriah to come home. Oh, he feeds him well. He sends some wine over to their house and some flowers and some romantic movies they can watch on Netflix and just gets them all set up. And what does Uriah do? Uriah says, I will not. I will not go into my home, to my wife, to my own bed. I will sleep out in my front yard because I would never go and enjoy this time away while my men are off fighting and suffering the hardships of war. Uriah was an honorable, honorable man. King David knew that just as soon as Bathsheba's baby bump started to show, all would know. That baby was not Uriah's. King David had to go for the nuclear option. He arranged so that Uriah would be killed in battle. That's what David did. You could just hear the wheels turning in his head. It's the only way to maintain dignity and honor for everybody involved. The only way to fix what I have done. Everybody wins if I do this. I maintain my dignity and honor. Bathsheba is protected. The baby is protected. Even Uriah, it will be an honorable death. No shame. We'll make a statue to him after this is all over. Everything will be fine. Well, Uriah dies, abandoned by his men at the direction of his king. He dies on the battlefield. After an acceptable time of, time of mourning, Bathsheba became the wife of David and gave birth to his son. Nathan, meanwhile, is both prophet and dear friend of David. He confronts the king with this horrible story of wickedness from some anonymous person in the kingdom. It included adultery, killing, lying, all the things that David just had done. Nathan went through all of it. David flies into a rage and he commands, as the Lord lives, the man who has done all of this deserves to die. Nathan drops the bomb. Then, you are the man. That's what he said. You are the man. You are the man. And David is broken. He realizes, if Nathan knows, the Lord knows. David knows what he did. David knows the depth of his sin and the tragedy that it has brought into the world. Now, David was no 12-stepper, but he finds himself at the seventh step, ready to humbly ask God to remove his sin, his shortcomings. Let's take a look at Psalm 51 again, this time just a few verses at a time. Have mercy on me, O God, David says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, this is a deeply personal prayer for David. Unlike so many of the other Psalms, this one does not begin with some cry for deliverance from enemies or some pleading for provision in the midst of want. No, no, this is a very personal thing. For David, this is about my transgression, my iniquity, my sin. For David, this is about my brokenness. The humility here is very unusual for King David. Nathan's confrontation has elevated David's awareness of his own sinfulness to a place of desperation. 
David begs for mercy from a God who is marked by steadfast love and abundant mercy. So many of the other Psalms include at least a a hint of entitlement. You know how they go, oh God, I have been so good, so answer my prayer. That's how they go. Oh God, I have done right, so hear my cry. Oh God, I am so faithful, you be faithful. Not this one. This one isn't like that. David is on his face before a holy God asking for grace, begging for grace. We continue verses 3 through 5. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. That line there, verse 3, for my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. I know that line so well. I've known this psalm so well myself. For a long time, it was part of my daily prayers. Probably still should be part of my daily prayers. It spoke to me about my own human condition. My sin ever before me, a sinner before my mother conceived me. We hear echoes of the Apostle Paul, the good that I would, that's not what I do. The evil that I would not, that is what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. We know, we know that feeling. It's easy to get in this place as we think about our lives and our own sin, our own brokenness, to get in this place where we expect punishment and judgment from God. That's verse 4. I spent many years, even after I became a Christian, thinking only about how I just had to suffer the punishment for my sin. Like I said last week, you do the crime, you do the time. I felt that down deep in my soul. No, no question now that we do have to suffer the consequences of our sin. Sometimes they are far-reaching. We bear those consequences. But there's a problem with this notion that we are always under the thumb of God's judgment and punishment. That's not grace. That's not grace at all. That's not what we find in Jesus. In fact, if we live in that world, in that place, we negate what Jesus did for us on the cross. Still, many of us live in that guilt and shame space where hope and healing can't get. (laughs) Guilt and shame become an impenetrable fortress protecting us from transformation. David is hungry for grace, for transformation. This psalm is a foreshadowing of what is to come in Jesus. This puts us in a posture of humility, humility, which is very different than guilt and shame. Let's keep reading. You, O God, desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart, Purge me with hyssop. That's the Old Testament pine saw, okay? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Now we get to the heart of the matter. Clean heart, 
inward being, secret places, wash, purge, clean, joy and gladness, a new and right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. It doesn't say, through the sheer force of my own will, I will create in myself a clean heart and do better tomorrow. That's not what this says. It says, you, O God, who created me, you create a clean heart in me. Put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your spirit. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy, the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart. What is that word, contrite? That's a strange word to us, to our modern ears. The, the message translation helps us understand a little better. It says this, going through the motions doesn't please you, O God. A flawless performance is nothing to you, O God. I learned to worship God when my pride was shattered. That's what it says. God always sees heart-shattered lives ready for true love. The kind that wraps us in arms of grace burns with holiness that terrifies us. The kind that transforms us transforms us. Contrite. Contrite or contrition, why, that's the moment that we experience, most of us experience this moment sometime between the ages of 15 and 30. You know what I'm talking about in just a minute. Between the ages of 15 and 30, all during that time, you, you just disappoint your parents over and over and over again. Raise a hand if you know what I'm talking about. You just mess up over and over and over again ages 15 to 30, and every time you're sorry, but really you're just sorry you got caught, okay? Does anybody know about this? I'm just sorry I got caught. That's what, that's what that is, ages 15 to 30. Somewhere in there, though, one day you just wake up and you discover that you actually are just sorry. I'm just sorry. More than I'm just sorry I got caught. You offer that to mom and dad. What happens? What happens? Things change in the most beautiful way. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That's what we're talking about. That's what David offers to God. That's what we are invited to offer to God too. Now, the last few verses of this psalm, verses 18 and 19, I won't read them here. You've heard them already. They got added much later uh, after David wrote this. It seems that a later editor was worried that David's very raw words would undermine the whole religious institution. So they added those words about, yes, do offer your heart, but you still need to offer the sacrifices. That's what they, they kind of put that back in there uh, on top of what David had to say. 
They were worried that if people found out that all this sacrifice wasn't necessary, that God really was actually more interested in the sacrifice of our hearts more than in the blood of bulls and lambs and birds, more than keeping a thousand rules and the honoring of a system which had become an idol to itself. Oh, we can't let people find out that, that God is really just concerned about the heart. David and Jesus who follow after, they just, uh, they just strip this whole religious thing naked and they show us what's really going on. The one true God is after just one thing, to live, to work, to love, to live, to work, to love the heart of every human being so that we may journey together toward healing and wholeness, the healing and wholeness of all creation. God loves us all so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life now and forever. Indeed, the Son did not come into the world in order to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Oh, my. No matter how hard you try, you can't earn that gift, but you do have to receive it. You do have to receive it. That's what the seventh step is all about. The seventh step gets us ready for the eighth step, which is, it's a hard one. It is to make a list, to make a list of all persons we had harmed and to become willing to make amends to them all. We find ourselves in the proper posture of humility to make such a list on our journey of salvation. We are now beggars before God who have received this tremendous gift of grace. We can start thinking about making that list the shape of this work mirrors the shape of the cross. You see a cross right here. The vertical dimension reminds us of our being restored to right relationship with God through Jesus. The horizontal makes it clear that our relationships with each other may now also be restored. The resentments that we've carried, the pain we've caused, the pain others have caused us, the complicated mess of life, why it somehow finds itself being transformed by God's grace into an authentic, vulnerable mass of humanity which is honest, kind, grateful, and humble all at the same time. Now we can make our list and we can get ready to make amends. One of the most powerful ways that we can recognize and begin to experience God's grace in our own hearts is actually to seek forgiveness from someone we have wronged. Now, we're going to be talking a whole lot more about this next week as we unpack what it looks like to start making those amends and to do that carefully and prayerfully. But for now, I'd like for you to, to get ready by doing just one thing between now and next Sunday. Would you spend a little time asking God to help you identify one person whom you have wronged over the years, just one person whom you have wronged over the years. Ask the Spirit to help you understand the best way to ask for their forgiveness, to begin to make amends. Get that person in your heart and mind between now and next Sunday, and let's see what God will show us as we do this work together. I think we will begin to experience grace in a very tangible real way. I know that it is a risky enterprise, but I think it will be worth the risk. <laughs>